We're about ready to start. Welcome back, everybody. Um, I want to go on to uh, the part of our topic that has to do with that special time in life when we feel ourselves in a void where uh, nothing seems to give us much comfort. So and I'll spend a, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I definitely want to go here because we sometimes think of spirituality and religion as a great source of comfort, which, of course, they are. But, as I say on page 77, there are times in life when our faith falls flat and cannot help us at all. We feel no comfort in it and gather no courage from it. We lose our motivation for spiritual practice. So you stop doing your meditation or your loving-kindness practice. We feel no sense of an accompanying presence. We can't know what's going on, no matter how smart we are. We can't second-guess or override this voiding of our power to escape from the void. We cannot go beyond it, even if we try with all our might. In this void of no consolation, no assurance that anything matters, our life becomes arid. We find no satisfaction in our spiritual practices. Now we notice whether we were using them only as consoling refuges or truly as tools for growth, which sometimes includes a challenging numbness like this. And then, um, in the void, now I want to connect it to the ego part of the topic. In the void, we cannot defend ourselves as we always have. What a paralyzing experience for the ego, with all its clever ruses, its trusty bag of tricks, its stratagems to maintain control, its belief that it's entitled not to have things like this happen. But now it is ambushed by a seditious and invisible militia. The ego is confronting its actual condition in the adult world. It has no real ground on which to stand securely, and it never has this king of ashes. Nietzsche expresses it well. Do we... Do we not stray as though through an infinite nothingness? The habits, the bulwarks, the dramas, the relationships, the addictions, all the people that we gathered around us to help us stave off this ultimate confrontation with the truth. They were the fill-ins that joined us in our game of avoidance. But all that is really collapsing is the illusion of security. Only illusion can collapse. Our shell, our armor, is being dismantled, and our true inner self remains. And in the terror of this moment, such a realization may not be much of a comfort. Our main fear may be that we're not able to die then and there. The void, though, is actually a special grace that takes us beyond the mind and all its tricks. We can now confront our condition instead of using so many consolations and distractions to protect ourselves from it. What an adult option. And uh, then I quote uh, James Hellman, Moments of dissolution are not collapses. They release a sense of personal human value from the encrustations of habit. So as we move out of the habit, we move into this new place. So I'm just going to read one final thing, and then we will uh, talk a little more about it. We find out that our challenge is not to find a way to fill ourselves. Being a hollow bamboo, 
does the most to help us grow into spiritual adulthood. We embrace total disillusionment with all the shelters, harbors, and retreats, and then we're free of despair. Despair means no hope to hold on to, and that condition is one of the givens of life. When we throw away the hope of rescue or exemption from the conditions and notice that we still survive, we're liberated from dependency upon them. And we walk the path between the extremes. Then the silence in heaven becomes what's described in the Hermetic hymn, the angels sing in silence. The last line of a poem by the 8th century Chinese poet Tu Fu is, I find myself lost between sky and earth like a gull. We notice in this line, I find myself lost between sky and earth like a gull. He does not ask to be saved. He does not ask to be given information about his direction or position. He asks nothing, only notices where he is. As if anywhere I am must be given, must be gift enough. He trusts in grace. Likewise, Emily Dickinson wrote, Moving on in the dark, like loaded boats at night, though there is no course, there is boundlessness. As if the boundlessness, also without comforting borders, was a grace. Such willingness to be suspended in midair is the best practice when you're in the void. And then the only prayer is yes. And I end with a quote by Alan Watts. The deepest you is the nothing inside, the side which you don't know. Don't be afraid of nothing. So, um, so this uh, moment, which happens to all of us, I presume, certainly happened to me many times, um, in which uh, you feel just kind of out there, like you have nothing much to stand on. And the usual supports that held you up, like your spirituality, like your uh, family and friends, like your uh, contact with nature, whatever it may be, no longer work for you. And you just feel like the gull suspended between earth and sky, not knowing your direction, not knowing if you'll ever arrive anywhere. And in this moment, you're getting a clear picture of the no thing. that in Buddhism describes our true identity, that we actually have no separate, reliable, freestanding self or ego that will inevitably and reliably get us through things. So in this kind of a moment, all we can do is let ourselves hang there, <clears throat> be there in this in a kind of suspense rather than try to get our sea legs. Now I'd like to use an example from the Judeo-Christian tradition that helps us understand this. One of the consoling psalms, psalms are uh, prayers in the form of poems, Hebrew poems, and the 23rd Psalm is the famous one that everybody has heard, the Lord is my shepherd. And in this Psalm, we have the famous words, 
yea, which means yes. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. because you are with me. And this you is God, higher power. Whatever um, you turn to in scary moments that gives you a sense that you are not alone, that you are accompanied somehow, like a guardian angel being with you, but if we look at this carefully, it gives us a lot of information about a, a highly evolved style of spirituality that no longer uses religious concepts or even religious figures to prevent us from recognizing the no-thingness the utter and eventually ultimate emptiness of our ego. Because look what it says. It says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't, I won't have to fear any evil the way other people do because I have you with me. I have this sense of your presence. But it doesn't say since you are with me, I will not have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say that. It, it makes it clear that you'll still have to walk through, no matter how deep your faith is in some higher power. Here's your higher power. Thou art with me. So, what, he's actually, what the psalmist, King David, is actually saying is, I'll still have to walk through the valley, but the one thing I won't have to do is be terrorized within it. I won't have to fear because somehow I have the sense that there is some power that's with me, some grace that accompanies me. And the only promise that's actually made in this statement, when you compare it, this is Psalm 23. Now look at the first line only of Psalm 22, the one right before it. It starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Put that next to, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. And we realize, oh, so this is the full human picture. Sometimes there will be moments in which you feel an accompanying presence, and there'll be other moments in which you'll feel totally forsaken. That's what I call the void you're forsaken, there are no comforts. This is where you find out, was I looking for the consolations of God or the God of all consolation who sometimes doesn't console? So King David has both experiences. He knows what it's like to be forsaken. He knows what it's like to 
be accompanied. And the only promise, since now we know, there's no promise that you will always feel thou art with me, because occasionally you will feel thou hast forsaken me. The only promise in all of this is right here. I can walk through. That's the true promise. Somehow, if I just stay with myself, just stay in place, just hang there in suspense, like the gull between heaven and earth, I'll be able to walk through my experience, which sometimes will feel fearless and accompanied, and at other times <clears throat> will feel terrifying and forsaken. Just as in childhood, sometimes I felt they were with me, and sometimes I felt they had forsaken me. But all that mattered is I kept walking through. It seems like, at first, he is simply describing how he walks through the dark valley. But when you look at it again, you realize, oh, that's the promise made to us humans. We have it in us to keep walking through, which we've all done, one crisis after another, and sometimes we fall and hurt ourselves, but there's some, something in us that helps us to get up again and keep going on. And there's no promise that you'll always feel like the higher power is with you, because sometimes the higher power will go silent. So we can't go there not as full-on adults. We can't go to, I will fear no evil, because the person who wrote this is very scared. So we keep moving up and say, well, what can we expect? You'll be able to walk through. And it's expressed well in a totally non-religious poem when you walk through a storm, keep your head up high. When you walk through a storm, keep your head up high. Don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the road is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on, walk on with faith in your heart. And that's how you will never walk alone. How do I not walk alone? I just keep walking through. And then I will be with all the other people all through history and now who also walked through this same crisis I'm in. So our sense of connection to all the other humans who have gone through what we're going through, that's the way in which we feel accompanied. Some guy in Nigeria is walking through this too, and some woman in Australia is also. And there's also some person in Iowa doing it, etc. So when I walk through, I don't walk alone. <coughs> not because there's some rescuer God who's making sure I'm never alone, because that same God is the one who forsakes us. So it can't be that. It has to be much more spare, much less of a promise, but nonetheless real that there's something in me that can uh, do what the gull is doing, uh, 
somehow remain between earth and sky with no direction. So I'm proposing this as another example of a spiritual consciousness that's highly mature and asking us, am I somehow holding on to the old view that there's somebody who will break my fall, who will make sure I don't ever go too far down, who will be there for me when I need him or her, and instead of that, um, going with this as the uh, as the only promise that I really need, somehow I'll walk through. And, and this walking through includes occasional falls. And that somehow um, I'll pick myself up, dust myself off, and keep going. Everybody following so far? I consider it a, a profound contemplation of something that we've heard all our lives and that has come across as so consoling, namely that there is a shepherd who guides us along the path and makes sure that we don't fall or don't get lost. And... Uh, an adult knows that it isn't really like that. Sometimes it's more like this. Why hast thou forsaken me? And no why left. Just thou hast forsaken me. Not even asking why. Don't have to ask why anymore because, because we realize one of the givens is there are times in life when you'll feel like you're just out there and that nobody's coming through for you. We felt this deserted in our childhood. And we felt this deserted in relationships. And we felt this deserted at various crises in the course of life. And somehow we're still here. So we must have found a way to walk through. And this would be the source of our consolation. It's of highly adult style. Because it doesn't have dependency. It just has consciousness of interdependency because of my connection to all the other people who are walking through at the same time. So uh, let's open it up for some questions on this topic because um, I think it's a really good thing for us to just spend a little bit of time on, and then we'll go on to something else. Uh, we'll start right here with Natalie. Boy, my head's going off like a... Um, the first thing that came to me is about those who resent that you walk through. The yeah. survival, you made me think of that, that, so if you walk through, I don't know, this is not well completed because the thought is just coming. I've walked through, I've survived, I've come through, I move into this place where um, I, I've been in this void and I've resented this void, so I'm very grateful that you've given me another way. I knew I had to be there, but if you walk, how is it? I don't know, you're saying this is a highly adult style. I know I've walked through it, but I have felt so childish. I have felt so incompetent. Mm. Um, so That's a feature of it. You'll feel like, <laughs> like you don't know how to do this. You have, that's beginner's mind. Okay. That I'm just a beginner at this. I'm an amateur. But so what? Because even though you're an amateur... Uh, this is how you're learning how to do it. And do those resent you? I, and I only say that because I've confronted people who have almost sometimes want to attack you. They really have this retaliation because 
you are walking through. You found the strength or whatever. And I don't yeah, know. That's, that can happen. I don't know. Anyway, I'm done because I'm not even, this is like. Our, our loving kindness practice includes joy at other success. So when you have true love, you would respect and appreciate people who are able to do this. So it's a big challenge for us as parents. Can we trust that time when we see that our kids are doing it on their own? They no longer need us. They're walking through. And that could be hard for us who want them to keep needing us because we thought that's the only way to love them. We didn't get it that, well, the way you love them is to be with them in each phase of life in a different way. When they're in that adult phase of life, then you're there as the supportive one, not as the one who makes it happen or advises them on how to make it happen. This is a big challenge. Somebody else had a right here? Uh, As you were talking about this, uh, I was thinking of how a Buddhist would frame this. And, yes. and one of the things that I've learned in my um, just few years of studying Buddhism is the idea when I get to that place of keeping in mind that life is always changing. Yes, impermanence. And that if things are bad, they're not going to stay bad. And if things are good, to appreciate that they're good because it's not going to stay that way. And that has been a, a comfort to me when good I get into you. that that good. spot, not having been um, trained or or schooled in in you know religion, which I see that more as. Yeah religious yes thank you because Buddhism doesn't offer this same kind of accompaniment the accompaniment comes from the Sangha the other practitioners the other people who are with you in your practice it doesn't come from contact with some transcendent being who's watching over you and the Buddha himself is not the historical character of Buddha lived in uh, 5th century before Christ. Buddha refers to your own enlightened being, not to someone, it refers to you. So we take refuge in the part of ourselves that has become enlightened enough to realize that forsakenness is an appropriate sequence in life's story. In the same way, if you could use this metaphor, here we have our, our planet Earth, and there is a beautiful, lush place like Kauai, but there's also a Sahara Desert. And somehow it needs both. So the human psyche is like that same planet. There are times in life when we need the Kauai experience, but there are times when we need the Sahara. And there's something about that sand blowing against us that brings us minerals that help us, if you could look at it that way. So Buddhism helps us be more adult about how we see this, but we don't want to put down the, the people who get some comfort from the sense that there's somebody who's uh, watching over us and also helping us. Okay, right here. Thank you. Um, is this on? Yeah. Um, the, the subject has special resonance for me right now. Um, that's why I've been crying for my, most of your talk. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, there, there's something about 
you know, I hate to generalize, but something about the Western mind that wants a yes or a no and doesn't want a maybe. You know, we want to know whether it's true or it's not true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think this is, you know, your your explanation of, of the psalm is a perfect example of, of of the middle way. You know, it's it's neither here nor there sometimes. Yes. And 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 I mean my the thing that I wrestle with is that when things go badly, it's my fault. And that's very, you know, egocentrical way of looking at things, like I have control. And so, you know, being able to, you know, to really think about, especially the Psalms. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've never thought about the Psalms before in this way. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as just walking through, period. You know, sometimes things are going to go well, and sometimes things are not going to go well. And often it has nothing to do with me. Um, it's not, it's not my fault. Um, it's not my, my achievement. It's just the way things are. Yeah. And it's the topography of the psyche, like the topography of the planet, Yes. that it will have this desert experience and that it will have the lush tropical experience. And... It's not even we. It's not even in our control to decide which one we're going to be in. Yeah. It's not like buying a ticket to. I think I'll buy a ticket to Hawaii, not a ticket to <laughs> Sahara. Uh, it yeah. isn't really like that. It's more like the gull yeah. finds himself lost between earth and sky. Yeah. For no for direction. no reason. For no reason of the gull's part. Right. You know, the gull is there. We're it's going to go on to talk about the guilt dimension. Okay. How we've been trained. So we'll go on to that. Uh, One last question right here. Isn't it the purpose of the ego to survive and to walk through? That's your healthy ego that walks through. See, your arrogant ego, your inflated ego says, this isn't supposed to happen to me. I'm not supposed to be in any dark valleys because I got everything all worked out. I'm entitled to uh, have uh, Kauai all the way. <laughs> but, but then you find out that, oh no, I didn't, I'm not getting any special treatment. Look, I'm having to uh, find myself in the dark valley just like everybody else. See, when we get that, it's the first movement toward adulthood. It's uh, stated very well in the first line of a poem by the ancient Roman poet Terence. Nothing human is alien from me. Anything that could happen to anybody else can happen to me. I don't have a special deal. And then the arrogant ego relies on that. I have a special deal on that, like all those other people. That's the narcissism of it. But when you say to yourself, no, I, anything that can happen to anybody else can happen to me too. And uh, so I better, I better be ready for that. And if you line up supports, like I want to have the kind of a God who comes through for me when I need him or her, that makes everything come out all right, uh, that will not get you to the adult position. That will keep you stuck in the childish view. Not to mention the chagrin and disappointment when you realize that it doesn't even work. It's interesting when Christ was on the cross, Why did he quote Psalm 22 instead of Psalm 23? Why didn't he say, the Lord is my shepherd? He didn't say that. 
he quoted this one. I feel abandoned right now. So there's something in that that um, brings us to this realization that um, you don't get special treatment because you have a spiritual orientation. That's the main point of it all. Now, let's go on to another part of the topic which someone also brought up during the, um, w during the break and which fits with the recent question that religion has sometimes been associated with guilt, often associated with guilt, um, and two kinds of guilt. There's, some of us were, were, were uh, infected with the guilt about pleasure. There's something about pleasure which is dangerous and selfish. And the other and even worse guilt is the guilt about having power. I can decide even when the authority says otherwise. So these are the two main styles that guilt is smuggled into our life. And a big part of recovering from a religious upbringing or a family upbringing that was very guilt-oriented is to take back your own power, like, as in the poem by Emily Dickinson, take, take back your power, and also to take back the belief that it's okay to love yourself. It's okay to be nice to yourself. It's okay to, to have as much fun as you can have. All of that is okay. We're, we shouldn't be caught in that um, puritanical view that uh, there's something about pleasure that will get us into big trouble. What gets us into big trouble is when we're irresponsible about it, but not the thing itself. Now, the other part of the guilt dimension is that guilt leads to punishment And punishment is a form of pain. So, an, so one belief in the puritanical view is that pain has something to do with your being guilty or at fault. And it would follow then that happiness is somehow a reward because you've done the right thing. And these are expanded into after-death experiences, so punishment in hell, happiness in heaven. <clears throat> An adult has realized that pain is not a punishment and happiness is not a reward. They just happen, like forsaken and accompanied. They just happen. So if we make this connection between how we were guilt-tripped in so many ways, and this was, of course, a way that the institution or family, so religion or family, had of controlling us because they're holding over our head this option of punishment if we don't follow the rules, leads us to this 
sense that, well, anytime we're in pain of some kind, we must have done something wrong. But the worst part of this is not the fact that we feel guilt because some authority has imported guilt into us. The worst part is described by, by the great mystical poet of the West, William Blake, our mind-forged manacles, manacles, chains, handcuffs, our mind-forged. We're now internalizing the guilt. So the authority is no longer speaking to us, and we're not even listening, but it's our mind that is now forging these manacles, these uh, chains that bind us. What are these chains? The internalized guilt and shame. Sh guilt is about what we have done, and shame is about who we are. Religion has often not helped us to free ourselves from guilt and shame. It has instead... Uh, brought these into our experience even more so than they would have come in automatically and naturally as part of life. So we want to ask ourselves, uh, am I still carrying around guilt and shame and fear of the punishment that follows? And I would like to propose a very ironic and unusual practice that helps us get beyond this. And it's simply, since, since punishment is retaliation for our own guilt, if we make our own vow not to retaliate against others who hurt us, Do good to those who hurt you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Sermon on the Plain. The vow not to retaliate against others, especially in relationships where it happens all the time. When we move in the direction of forgiving others, it works backwards and helps us forgive ourselves. When we start um, letting go of that automatic Cro-Magnon inclination in us, that natural reaction to hit back when others hit us, when we can create a little mindful pause between being hit and hitting back, in that mindful pause, we simply sit, again, the hanging in suspense, <clears throat> and not give in to the ego's favorite sport, which is retaliation. When we start acting that way toward others, we notice it's easier to forgive ourselves. So I'm proposing this as a spiritual practice that no matter what happens to me from now on from other people, I'm going to say, ouch, but I'm not going to hurt back. I will say, ouch, I will speak up, I will show my anger. I can, that's fine, I can do all that. But the one thing I won't do is I won't hurt back. When I see that it is possible not to hurt back, the joy that comes from being a person like that frees us from our own guilt and shame. And it really works. So it's an ironic style because you're doing the opposite. You're, you're, you're showing the universe how to do it.
This is how you do it. You say, uh, this is what should have been done originally. You say, ouch, but you don't hurt back. And with this practice, you start to forgive yourself because the forgiveness goes everywhere. What is forgiveness? A letting go of resentment and the need to retaliate. So when you let go of the need to retaliate, you're already forgiving. <clears throat> Forgiveness is simply the word that you use when you're no longer holding on to resentment or the need to retaliate. And when we were brought up with hundreds and hundreds of experiences, and this is all of us, every time you did wrong, you were punished when they found out about it. Every time you did wrong, you were punished at home and at school and on the play yard. You started to figure, oh, that's how it is here. When anybody does wrong to me, I hit back. Just like when I do wrong, they hit me back. Oh, that's how it works. But we come from another tradition. The one that Buddha brought to us comes from also Sermon on the Mount and so many other places that you don't have to be that way. Instead of hitting back, you can say your ouch and not hit back. Wherever possible, open a dialogue. Move in a whole new direction in the way humans work with each other. So I, I throw this out as a, another practice that you might want to consider. And I think you'll find that there's something about it that um, works backwards and frees you from a lot of the guilt about pleasure and power. Here's how. You find pleasure in the new way of being, the non-soprano way of being, and you find power in the fact that you're no longer compelled, because that's what power is, freedom from compulsion. You're no longer compelled to retaliate the way everybody else does. You have a new repertory that um, no longer has to take the style that everybody else uses. So that is an empowering moment. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, so let's just have a couple of questions on this part, and then we can move on. Any questions or ideas? Yes, uh, Natalie, this woman right here at the end. Yeah. Hi, I, I really like what you're saying. Um, totally with you. I'm curious about a couple of ideas that still haunt me, even though I'm buying into this 100%. Yeah. Um, and one of them is karma. Uh, okay, good. Yes, I want to mention that. The other is um, kind of the notion of if you are coming from, I guess you might say, an empowered position where you take responsibility for the things that happen that maybe you didn't necessarily want to manifest for example if you if it's true that you draw to you people that uh, are going to teach you lessons that you need to learn um, or if you believe maybe that idea that you you do have to live a lesson until you've learned it and then you can move on those sorts of things mm -hmm. um, how do you how do you reconcile those thoughts that you're okay let's start with the karma Because in the Hindu tradition that Buddha was born into, karma was something like, so karma in its simplest meaning is that actions, 
expected means action, actions have consequences. And that was um, gradually became good actions lead to happiness as reward, and evil actions lead to pain as punishment. And it was Buddha who um, who said, no, karma is not about happiness and as reward and punish, pain as punishment. Happiness simply means that actions have consequences, which seems like a obvious fact, but that it should no longer be connected to reward and punishment. Because reward and punishment are the deeply held wishes of the ego. <clears throat> That's why they couldn't possibly be spiritually right on. It's way too suspicious. Because the ego wants to make sure that they get theirs and that I get rewarded. Whether this happened on this side of the grave or the other side, <laughs> heaven or hell. And it will enlist God to help that happen. <coughs> so Buddha rightly broke the connection, said, no, it's not, it's not the reward and punishment. It's just a way of saying that um, we that our actions are important, don't waste this precious life. That's one of his quotations. Um, do all you can to move toward enlightenment and help others move there too. <coughs> and uh, your actions have long-term consequences, so um, be careful about your choices. It's more about that than about this. So the religious view that um, says there's a heaven waiting for those who were good and there's a hell waiting for those who were bad comes from a place that panders to the ego that wants to be sure that the given of life, that things are not fair, be canceled in its favor. So we would not want to carry that belief around with us anymore, that there's a hell of eternal punish punishment, a hell of eternal torture, or a heaven of eternal reward. We want, as we become more adult, we let go of happiness as a reward and pain as a punishment. And um, we upgrade our view so that if there is an afterlife, of course we have no way of knowing, we might put it this way. And now I'll quote a, a, um, one of the saints of the Catholic tradition, Saint Therese. I will spend my heaven doing good on earth. She's a true bodhisattva. <laughs> I will spend my heaven doing good on earth. So instead of saying, is there an afterlife? I hope there's an afterlife. We say, I only want there to be a ha afterlife if in it I can keep doing good on earth. This would be having the loving kindness go beyond the grave. Not, it's going to be a reward and I'll just be playing a harp and <laughs> bathing in all the joy and beauty. <clears throat> no, I want to go right on with the wonderful project of doing good on earth. Imagine her saying that. 
I will spend my heaven doing good on earth. She promised that. What a mature spiritual consciousness. Because you could have said, well, after all I've done, I should get a reward. <laughs> so when you go this way, um, that this is a community of humans and that we're all trying to help each other and that maybe we could still help each other after death. We hope that that might happen. And if there is such a thing, we'll be glad about it. And if there isn't, that'll be okay too. But this comes from this, I will spend my heaven doing good on earth, is the bodhisattva style. I will not enter nirvana until I bring everyone else with me. It's a very high form of love. Okay, let's have one last question and then we'll take our break. Way in the back. We'll have other questions after the break. I wanted to ask uh, if you could talk a little bit about the difference between seeking revenge and seeking justice because it does seem to me that along with forgiveness it's important to stand for truth and to stand um, against tyranny that could be inflicted on others. So if you could talk about that, I'd appreciate okay. it. Okay. Uh, she's bringing up a good point. So let's look at two kinds of justice. The kind that the court mostly uses is retributive justice. which means reprisals against you for the crime you have committed. That's the equivalent of revenge. So you're going to lose your freedom, go to jail, pay fine, etc. Another kind of justice, which now the courts are starting to use more of, is called restorative justice. What can you do for the community to restore the imbalance that you created by your crime, like community service? So our sense of justice, if it's only retributive, is the ego style, favorite sport, revenge. Whereas the restorative style comes from what seems to be a more enlightened place in us, Here in the restorative justice style, we're hoping for the transformation of the other rather than the punishment of the other. Simple example. Someone cuts you off in traffic. You are first scared, but you can't allow yourself to be scared, so you turn it into anger. That's the road rage. Road rage is the, another word for ego. <laughs> so you say, I hope that so-and-so gets a ticket. So what you're saying is, I hope he's punished for daring to cross me. Now, what if you were to change that as your new spiritual practice? Instead of saying, I hope he gets a ticket, you can be just as angry. But instead of saying, I hope he gets a ticket, you say, I hope he slows down and drives more safely so that he will not cause an accident. Now I'm hoping that he will be transformed into a safe driver. On this side, I'm hoping he'll <clears throat> be punished for being a bad driver. Retributive, restorative. And we do have the choice. This is a good example of the difference between a spiritual orientation, which is on the restorative side, and the ego orientation, which is on the retributive side. And of course, we also do this even in intimate relationships. 
we will get back at our partner for what he or she has done, rather than look for a way to restore the harmony. Maybe we saw our parents do that, where they were more retributive toward each other than restorative. Everybody follow? So it's not as if we're letting go of the sense of justice. It's that we have expanded it so that it's no longer based on the old model of just punish. It's based on the new model, which is how can the harmony be restored? How can you make restitution? How can you make amends? for how you have hurt others, putting the accent on that. And I realize this doesn't work for every kind of criminal, but it could certainly work in our personal life. Good, so let's take a short break and then we will come back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.